Please open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 18. We're going to begin this morning by reading the first 10 verses of this chapter. You can find that beginning on page 192 of the Bibles provided. We'll be planning to cover uh, three or four chapters this year, this week, uh, verses eight, uh, chapters 18 through 21, as we look at the second half of the distribution of the land. So we're going to begin by reading these 10 verses, Joshua 18. Listen to God's word. Then the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there. The land lay subdued before them. There remained among the people of Israel seven tribes whose inheritance had not yet been apportioned. So Joshua said to the people of Israel, how long will you, go, how long will you put off going in to take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you? Provide three men from each tribe, and I will send them out, and they, that they may set out and go up and down the land. They shall write a description of it, with a view to their inheritances, and then come to me. They shall divide it into seven portions. Judah shall continue in his territory on the south, and the house of Joseph shall continue in their territory on the north. And you shall describe the land in seven divisions, and bring the description here to me. And I will cast lots for you here before the Lord our God. The Levites have no portion among you, for the priesthood of the Lord is their heritage. And Gad and Reuben and half of the tribe of Manasseh have received their inheritance beyond the Jordan eastward, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave them. So the men arose and went, and Joshua charged those who went to write the description of the land, saying, Go up and down in the land and write a description and return to me, and I will cast lots for you here before the Lord in Shiloh. So the men went and passed up and down the land and wrote in a book a description of it by towns in seven divisions. And then they came to Joshua to the camp at Shiloh. And Joshua cast lots for them in Shiloh before the Lord. And there Joshua apportioned the land to the people of Israel, to each his portion. This is God's word. If you think of an event, something you've attended... Uh, what makes it stand out as special or important in your mind? We can make a list of a lot of things, right? So a dinner date to a fancy restaurant probably ranks as higher on the list of importance and significance than going out to Whataburger, right? Now it's debatable about which one has better food, but one seems more important. The location and the setting of the event is a signal to how important it is, right? It kind of gives you some clues. If you show up in a fancy place with everyone dressed up, you expect something different than you do at Whataburger. And then what happens on the, at the event, at the, at the date, that, that changes things too, right? If you get engaged there, well, that obviously raises the stakes. It's something you're going to remember for your whole life. But even more than what happens, perhaps what's most important about any event is who is there, who's present that makes the, makes the event something to remember. So if you get dragged to a fancy restaurant to go meet with your least favorite client by your boss, well, that's not something you particularly enjoy, right? It's just another day at the office, hopefully with better food, right? But again, if someone is there at that restaurant who you admire or love, well, again, that, that can make it special. It's, it's who's there that matters, so all these things, the setting, who's there, what happens, these all contribute to the significance of an event. Now, as we look at Joshua chapter 18, we're meant to see all these elements in play, the setting, what takes place, and, and who is there. All of these things are, are signaling to us what's going on here is really important. As we've seen, chapter 18 picks up in the middle of a story of the, the distribution of the land. So the account of how God's people inherited the land that God gave them. It's, it's the dividing up and even the description and of boundaries in actual books, apparently, of, of what each tribe received. And last week we looked at the first part of the account where Judah and the tribes of Joseph, they received their inheritance um, and then we also heard about the allotments on the other side of the Jordan, on the, on the uh, eastward side, where, where Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh received their inheritance. So now we're turning to kind of the main chunk of the land that's left and the seven remaining tribes on the, the western side of the Jordan, the, the land known as the land of Canaan. 
But we also notice that the setting, the, the place where this distribution is happening has changed. No longer is it the camp at Gilgal, but the setting has moved to this town in the, in the hill country of Ephraim called Shiloh. And the town itself is not that important. What's most important is that the congregation of Israel has all assembled here and they've set up the tent of meeting. So in our study of Leviticus, we tried to give you a, an impression of how significant it was that God had designed and then ordained the building of this tent of meeting, this tabernacle. It was the place where his presence dwelled. That's the setting of all that's happening now, beginning in verse, chapter 18. It's the Lord's presence there at the tent of meeting. So we have the, the setting in place, but we also are meant to see who's here, right? Who are the people that make this event important? And the important person who's there is the Lord himself. So even the passage that we just read, we see that Joshua cast lots for Israel before the Lord, is how the ESV translates it. The NIV and other translations say, in the presence of the Lord. This is happening in God's presence at the end of the distribution of the land for the seven tribes, in chapter 19, verse 51, we find this summary statement. These are the inheritances that Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of the father's houses of the priests of the tribes of the people of Israel distributed by lot at Shiloh before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So they finished dividing the land. So this distribution happens there at the entrance of the tent of meeting. All of God's people are there, gathered there at the, at the gates of the tabernacle. Joshua is there, of course. Eliezer, who's this high priest who had been first commissioned in Moses' day and, and, and succeeding Aaron and then uh, is still serving in Joshua's day. He's there. He's the eldest of Aaron's surviving sons. But the most important presence is the Lord himself. So this land that's being distributed, it's, it's by lot, but it's not random. It's not a roll of the dice. The Lord is there. The Lord is superintending these castings of lots. It's all by God's design. It's all according to God's grace. Maybe a good way to picture this is Israel is gathered in the courtyards of their heavenly father here. That's where they are. The place where heaven touches earth. They've gathered here for this thing to happen. For God to give them the inheritance that he promised them. You see how significant this is. This is no mere kind of administrative record of, of land titles. This is God giving his people what he promised them in his presence. What we see here is the Lord's bounty and goodness on display. As we've already recounted, the Lord keeping his promises, keeping them in, in great detail, even having them write down how he's kept their promises. The Lord is establishing his people, and he's doing it according to his goodness, according to his good promises, not one word of which has failed. And we read a, a, another summary of all of this in chapter 21, at the very end of our passage, verses 43 through 45. This is really a summary of the whole book of Joshua to this point. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. These chapters are all about the Lord's good promises coming to pass. Coming to fruition. It reveals that the Lord keeps his promises. And his promises are his good promises. So this morning we're going to spend our time meditating on the Lord's goodness and we're going to do that under two headings. First, the Lord's goodness creates and provides for his people. The Lord's goodness creates and provides for his people. And second, God's people are to reflect his goodness. God's people are to reflect his goodness.
Before we jump into that first point, I just want to make sure you have the, the lay of the land here of these chapters. So we just read verses 1 through 10, which tell us about this move to Shiloh and these survey teams that are sent out. If you're a civil engineer or a title guy, man, this is your Bible passage, right? You get surveyors writing down the land. It's great. But then the rest of chapters 18, 19 are the distribution of the land for these seven tribes. Chapter 20 is about the establishing of cities of refuge. These were cities that the law of Moses had commanded Israel to establish, three on each side of the Jordan. And they were specifically to help Israel to deal with the crime of manslaughter. So we'll see more about this in a minute. But these cities of refuge were established by God as a way to enact justice. As we see, by establishing these cities of refuge, the Israelites show they intend to reflect God's law, God's justice, and his mercy. And then finally, chapter 21 is mostly about cities for the Levites. So this priestly tribe had no inheritance within the, the land except for these cities that God commanded the tribes to provide for them. And through their support of the priests, the Israelites demonstrate how much they value worship. That worship is central for their life in the land. So we see that Israel reflects God's goodness through their worship. So that's the lay of the land of these three or these four chapters. With that, let's look at this first major heading. The Lord's goodness creates and provides for his people. That's really what this whole passage is about. This entire section of the book, chapters 13 through 21, is all about the Lord's generosity. He's giving the people what he promised them. And here we see that kind of the stakes are raised. We know that before God was superintending the process, Eliezer the priest was there, but, but now the, the stakes are raised as they assemble here at the tent of meeting. It's a sign of how much the land has been subdued, that they can, they can set up the tent without fear of having to take it down right away, right? They can set it up here and worship and have this big, big gathering of, of distribution and of celebration. So here they are gathered around, God's giving them the land, and as verse 21, uh, chapter 21, verse 45 says, the Lord is keeping every word of the good promises he made. Here is God's goodness creating his people. As we see this day arrive here in Shiloh, this day arrive of God's goodness, we need to remember how Israel should not have seen this day. I want you to, I want you to remember a certain account that happens and we all know it, the golden calf incident, right? We all know this account, but I think sometimes we forget the details, at least, at least I do. So after their sin with the golden calf, do you remember that the Lord commanded Israel to leave Sinai and go to Canaan, but he informed them, I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. So the Lord had resolved, okay, I'm not going to destroy you right now, I'm going to let you go, but as far as I'm concerned, you're gone. We are no longer, we're no longer together, you and I. Leave. That was Exodus 33.3. And then Moses intercedes for the people. It's only after Moses intercedes that the Lord responds, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Moses doesn't leave it at that. He wants to make sure he's got God's promise. So he, he says to the Lord, in verses 15 and 16 of Exodus 33, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Is it not your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? You hear what Moses says? Father, it is not worth going if you are not with us. That is the only thing that makes us us. Don't, leave, don't let us leave here without promising to be with us. That's what Moses realizes. And he's right. It is the Lord's goodness and the Lord's presence among his people, his gracious presence that makes Israel Israel. Remember, this is, this is Exodus chapter 33. You remember what happens in Exodus chapter 34? It's the great revelation of God's glory to Moses. Right after this, Moses asks to see God's glory, and the Lord reveals his glory to Moses. And it's something that's really almost impossible to understand what's happening visually there. But the Lord reveals himself not only visually, but with words. 
And he says, I am merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's how the Lord reveals himself, and he will not leave the guilty unpunished. That's how the Lord reveals himself to Moses in this moment. Israel is now kind of reborn after the golden calf incident, after their sin, as a people of grace once again. In God's goodness, he forgave Israel and he did not exile them from his presence. He resolves to go on with them, to forgive their sin, to be patient with them, to be abounding in mercy to them. And so the fact that we're here in Joshua 18 and we find Israel gathered around God's tabernacle, it's a stunning sign of God's grace. God's goodness is gracious. It's forgiving of sin. And this is just the the latest example, right? The the grace we see at Shiloh, it's just one in a number of things we could cite, right? It's it's God's grace that calls Abram to begin with from Ur of the Chaldees, as we, we read about in Genesis 15. It was by grace and power that he rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt. He heard their cries and he redeemed them. It's by grace he brought them through the Red Sea and then through the Jordan. It's by grace he even gave them the tabernacle and and he met with them there. It's by grace that he allows the tabernacle to be cleansed with sacrifices after Nadab and Abihu's sin. We see grace upon grace. It's by grace that he is merciful to this rebellious generation and he allows their offspring to make it into the land. It's by grace that he conquers Jericho. And after Ai, he conquers Ai. All of it's by grace. None of it's because Israel deserved it, right? It's not because they are good enough or mighty enough or large enough. It's simply because God showed them grace. His gracious goodness creates his people. He does all of this because it's in his nature to overflow in love for his people. That's why God has sustained them, because of his gracious love, his love for his own glory and for their good. Do you know the gracious goodness of God? You realize there's no other way to know God. You might think you know God, but if you think of God only as kind of a a big moral teacher in the sky, you don't know God. If you think of him only as a wrathful judge, you don't know God. The only way to know God is by knowing him in his fullness, in his goodness, which entails his righteousness and judgment, but it includes his grace. To begin understanding this gracious goodness of God, we have to begin by understanding we do deserve his wrath. That's what Ephesians chapter 2 verse 3 says. We're all by nature children of wrath, enslaved to our own desires. But in his grace, God sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he became a man to pay the price our sins deserve. According to this grace, we can be saved. God's coming to us. It's all of his grace. All because of the good pleasure of his will, Paul says in Ephesians. That's why we can have our sins paid for. The Lord promises those who trust in Christ peace with God. That we can belong to the household of God, God's family. Do you know this gracious goodness of God? This is how God makes his people. He creates what he loves. The Lord creates by his gracious goodness. But we also see here that God's goodness is unchanging goodness. The good promises of God that we read about at the end of chapter 21 were first made to Abraham, as we read, 400 years before. And these promises were then repeated to Abraham's son and grandson, Isaac and Jacob, and then to all of of Jacob's descendants. God makes these promises and the promises don't change. And now that brings us to Joshua. It's because of these unfailing promises of God that we get here. I wonder wonder if you've ever known someone so unchangeably good as God. This kind of permanence is really, I think, hard for us to grasp in the modern world. Our lives are always changing, aren't they? I mean, just as a silly example, you know, try to show a, a, a toddler, like Anna's age, a, a telephone 
from when you grow up. They don't know what it is, right? They've never seen it. The, the object has changed. The thing we call a phone today and the thing we call the phone 20 years ago is fundamentally different. So technology is always changing, but think of all the other things that are changing, right? We, we wonder whether the toddlers of 10 years from now will, will be able to know what a marriage is or a man or a woman is, right? We live in these unstable times, but God doesn't change. I change, he changes not, we sang in that first song. The Lord's promises don't change. Another way we see the, the wonderful unchangingness of God, the immutability of God, is when we compare our human frailty and fickleness to God's unchanging goodness. I mean, human beings at our best, we aspire to be faithful, right? But we, we still fail to live up to those aspirations. And that's at our best, right? We're, we're well-intentioned but weak. At our worst, we intentionally deceive. We try to hurt people. I know in this room, you've all been hurt by somebody because of their sin. You've experienced firsthand the changing and failing nature of human goodness. Right? Normally, it's not worth betting on human goodness. Not only that, you know the ways you've hurt others too. You've broken promises. You've failed to love others as you should have. When we do get to know a person who is remarkably unfailing in their faithful love, we're amazed, right? And rightly so. It's wonderful to know someone who's just consistently loving and faithful. How much more? should we be moved and amazed by God's faithful love. His promises never fail. And then again, we need to recall here what's happening in, in Joshua. The Lord is giving Israel their inheritance. He's providing for them a place where they can live out their lives in his blessed presence before the face of God, according to his promises. This is meant to be a kind of return to Eden, a new Eden here on earth a renewed paradise. He's giving his people this gift. Now, if we talked about how there's more work to be done to turn this wild land of Canaan into an Eden, but the main work has already been done by God himself, and Israel is meant to be able to go forward with his promises, trusting and obeying, knowing that God is unwaveringly good, that his promises will be kept if they will trust him. This, these sets of promises are not too different than what we Christians find ourselves to have received in Christ. Right? We, we can look back and see how Christ has accomplished the victory right, for us over sin and death. We can look back and see he, he crushed our enemies by dying on the cross in our place. And we know too we've received promises of God's unfailing presence, right? The promise of Joshua chapter 1, verse 5, I will never leave you or forsake you, is repeated for Christ's people in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. The Lord has promised to be with us. He's promised to equip us for every good work. And he's promised to bring us into his presence in an ultimate, final way. And because of his unchanging promises, we have hope in this life and for the life to come. So not even death, that ultimate change that humans experience, not even that can thwart the good promises of God. Our Lord told his disciples in John chapter 14, verses 2 and 3, that he was going to go away to prepare a place for them, and that if he goes away, he will come back to take them to his presence. And then... In the Apocalypse of John, the Revelation, we are told these words, that those who die in the Lord are blessed. Blessed are they who die in the Lord, that they may rest from all their labor. That is our, our great hope, that through the, all the, the changes we experience, all the failures we endure, all the sins we commit, we have a hope of a God whose promises will not change. He's promised to complete the good work he began in us, and he will do so. He will never leave us, and he will bring us safely through the waters of death, and we will reach the other side.
This is, this is what we are sustained by. God creates us by his promises and he provides by his promises. God creates and sustains by his goodness. So he will sustain us to obey him. He'll, he'll comfort us in sorrow. He'll never leave us, even in death. He reigns in heaven and he's coming back for us. One of the reasons throughout these last few weeks we've been reciting catechisms that focus on our, our future is just because I, I think that's what we're meant to think of here as we think of Joshua giving out these land grants. We're to think of the Lord's promise that we have an inheritance with him that's incorruptible, an inheritance that moth and rust can't destroy, that's safe in heaven where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And so we confess, those who trust in Christ, we have already begun to experience the blessing of eternal joy. Right? Eternal life is ours now by faith in Jesus. And we have the hope that immediately after we die, we will go to be with Christ, our head. We're looking forward not only to that, but to that perfect blessedness that God is preparing for us, such as no eye has seen and no ear has heard. Right, that was in our catechism, but it's straight from the Bible, from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. So brothers and sisters, if you're overwhelmed by this fickle and fallen world, turn to Christ and know his goodness does not change. If you're, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you don't know yourself to be someone who's been saved by Christ, the message is the same for you. Turn to him and know his certain Goodness. He makes promises and they never change. Before we leave this point about God's goodness, I want to make sure we notice that even in the midst of all this goodness, there was a problem in Israel. We hear a hint of it in verse 3 of chapter 18. Joshua asks, How long will you put off going in to take possession of the land? The implication here is that these seven tribes remaining have been procrastinating or putting off obeying the Lord. We see here a contrast between these seven tribes and what we saw in the previous chapters. So in chapter 14, remember what Caleb did? He approached Joshua and the elders and said, hey, remember what the Lord promised me? Similarly, the, the daughters of Zelophehad, they did the same thing. They came to the elders of Israel and said, hey, Moses made us promises. We're here to receive those promises. We're eager to take hold of them. They took the initiative to remind God what he'd said to them. And God was happy to keep his promises to them. But for some reason, these other seven tribes, they have not sought to take their inheritance. They're not queuing up at the, the front of the line to say, Joshua, what, where's our inheritance? Joshua has to provoke them and prompt them. Go and survey the land. You know, imagine someone's bought you a house. And the final step is you've got to you know, go to the title office and sign some papers and pick up the keys. But you keep finding reasons to put it off. What sense would that make? I think that's what's happening here. The Lord's led them to conquer the land, again, to this degree that they're able to set up the tabernacle. The Lord's among them. The land's subdued. The time has come to take it but they don't. Now, we don't know why. There's not much elaboration here. We do get some hints about the sin involved in what we hear read about the tribe of, of Dan in chapter 19. If you read this passage, you notice that Dan failed to take their portion. And if you read in Judges 19, you kind of read the grisly details of what they did. They basically set up their own religion and they moved to the far north, kind of the most Gentile parts and basically lived kind of their own life away from God's people. So we, we, we give a hint there is some, some sin involved. We can imagine fear. They may have doubted that God could really use a, a small people like their tribe to drive out the land, the people of their lands they were given. We can imagine that they knew they were guilty of sin. Perhaps they, they knew about their own household gods that they had been harboring. And they didn't want to relinquish them. Or confess those things to, to God. We can't know for sure, but we can examine ourselves. 
When you consider the Lord's promises to you, where are you hesitant to depend on him? Where are you most tempted to to doubt God's goodness? What, What areas of obedience are you neglecting? Maybe even afraid to try trusting the Lord by obeying him in those ways. In what area of your life are you most cynical? Are you procrastinating in trusting the Lord? One good practical step would be find another Christian to talk to about this. Do you have someone you could, could invite into your life and say, I'm really struggling here. But most of all, look to Christ. By God's grace, that's where another Christian will point you, is to Jesus. Look to Jesus. And in Christ, we see the graciousness and the unchanging nature of God's promises. We see how God is unchanging in his goodness. This is how you began the Christian life, isn't it? By seeing the goodness of God to you in in Jesus Christ, how he took your sin upon himself so that you could be forgiven. That's how you began the Christian life. That's how you continue in the Christian life. The Lord created you by his goodness. And that's how the Lord will sustain you. So if you're tempted to procrastinate in faith, look again to Jesus. That's our first major point. The Lord's goodness creates and provides for his people. It's meant to encourage Israel as they take the land. But it's not only meant to do that. It's also meant to shape the way they live in the land. Their lives were to be ordered as a response to God's goodness. That's our second major point. Israel is supposed to kind of reflect God's goodness. God's people are to reflect God's goodness. With that in mind, let's read the first six verses of chapter 20. you find this on page 194. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Say to the people of Israel, Appoint the cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the manslayer who strikes any person without, incident, without intent or unknowingly may flee there. They shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. He shall flee to one of these cities and shall stand at the entrance of the city gate and explain his case to the elders of that city. Then they shall take him into the city and give him a place, and he shall remain with them. And if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not give up the manslayer into his hand, because he struck his neighbor unknowingly and did not hate him in the past. And he shall remain in that city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment, until the death of him who, was, who is at high priest at the time. Then the manslayer may return to his own town and his own home, to the town from which he fled. So this is something commanded in, in Moses and then in Numbers chapter 20, 30, I'm sorry, in Numbers chapter 35, and now it's fulfilled here. These cities of refuge are for those who had unintentionally taken the life of another person. And Israel was supposed to provide six of these cities. We see them do that in chapter 20. The rest of it shows how they apportion these particular cities, three from the west side of the Jordan and three from the east side of the Jordan. Just like our laws recognize the difference between premeditated murder and manslaughter, so did God's law for Israel. And we can guess that our law probably derives from God's law for Israel in some form. And God's law recognizes that motive matters as we assess the seriousness of the crime and the, the punishments that are appropriate for a crime, God's law shows us motive matters, and it takes that into account. If a person did something that inadvertently kills another, they can flee to one of these cities of refuge, and there they can await trial or also serve out a time of exile if they're found guilty. In these verses, we read about this figure called the Avenger of Blood. Right? It sounds like the character in an action movie, right? The posters make themselves. But in this context, it's a title. It refers to someone within Israel who has the legal authority to carry out justice on those who killed someone else. So not just anyone could decide, I'm going to be an avenger of blood today. This was some sort of recognized authority for executing justice. And so what we're reading about here are are the legal arrangements for dealing with this specific kind of crime. An avenger of blood is this legally authorized executioner, and the city of refuge is this this safe haven 
for an accused party to wait until trial or then to serve his sentence after the trial. We also see there's a detail here that for those who are guilty of manslaughter, their time in the city of refuge can expire when the man who's currently high priest dies. We'll come back to that in a second. So in these statues about the avenger of blood and the city of refuge, we get a window into what God's justice is like. And therefore, we get a window into God's character. I want you to notice a few things in chapter 20. And the, the first is that Israel is obedient here. right? They, as they set themselves up, or as God sets themselves up in the land, they do what God says. They establish these cities. Now, this is not a small thing. Right? They could have organized themselves in a variety of ways. They could have gone their own way. They could have said, well, how do the Canaanites organize themselves with their justice? We could just do that. We can get away with it, right? They could have found some other method of justice, but they don't. They, 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 they seek to do what God has called them to do. And we see here that obedience is the kind of the first most basic way we reflect God's goodness. If we understand ourselves to be created by God and redeemed by God's grace then we respond in obedience. And we see that this obedience is more than simple rule-keeping, right? Because God's law reflects his holy and righteous character. A commitment to follow God's law says that Israel wants to reflect that character to the world. By having these sorts of arrangements, we're going to be like our God and how he says justice should be meted out. And so the same goodness that characterizes God is supposed to characterize God's people. God's people reflect his goodness. The fact that this law about manslaughter exists, I think, also tells us something about God himself. As we've already reviewed, he's a God of justice. He takes the taking of human life seriously. There must be some sort of penalty for those who take human life. He also is a God of due process, we might say, right? He has a, he has a process for allowing those who are accused of a crime to, to find safe haven until their trial. He has a way of, of punishing them, a way that's short of capital punishment because they didn't do this intentionally. And so we, we see that there's a lot of wisdom and justice and mercy bound up in God's law. And again, this... These laws, as they are instituted in Israel, are a way for God to reflect his character. They reflect the Lord's justice and mercy as they carry out these laws. Finally, we need to come back to this element about the high priest. If we read the, the law of Moses, we find that there's no ransom allowed for somebody who's killed another person. It's very interesting to consider why did the death of the high priest trigger the freedom of the manslaughterer. Is it possible that we have a little hint of the gospel here? That the high priest's life is the acceptable ransom for one guilty of manslaughter? Isn't that exactly what we find in Jesus? That our high priest gave his life as an acceptable offering for our lives. That's the only acceptable offering that can free a sinner from the penalty of sin. But overall, what we see here is that just as the Lord is righteous and merciful, just as the Lord loves justice and does mercy, so should his people be. So the gospel here creates the people of God, it comforts the people of God, and it rules the people of God. It's to be reflected in their lives. This is exactly what God says to his people later in Micah chapter 6, verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you to do justice and to love kindness or mercy and to walk humbly with your God. That's what Israel is supposed to be doing here as they follow God's laws about these cities of refuge. Their life in the land is to be marked by a reflection of God's character. Now we know that Israel fails to do this, right? But Christ shows himself to be the true Israelite who ultimately does fulfill this. He's the image of the invisible God. If we want to know what God's righteousness and justice are like, we look at Jesus himself and his cross. And as people of Christ, we are to reflect this in our own lives. I just want to walk through a potential application of this for us. As we think about what does it mean to reflect God's justice and mercy, 
I think one way we could approach this is by considering how a congregation like ours should deal with sin. If we find that a, a brother or sister is in sin, what should we do? Well, the justice of God means that we, we don't treat sin lightly or ignore it. Right? If we treat it lightly or ignore it, we lie about God's righteousness and justice, and we lie about the seriousness of sin. And if we ignore sin, we simply leave room for sin to grow. So if we see a brother or sister sinning, the Lord has given us a role in confronting them in their sin. Now, I don't think any of us like that word, confrontation, right? It sounds very confrontational, right? It doesn't sit well with us, but it helps if we consider God's justice and mercy go together. So confrontation about sin should be marked by mercy. If we go to a brother or sister who's in sin, we shouldn't assume we know the whole story. The merciful confrontation begins with asking questions. You know, what did you mean when you said that, or... I thought I saw you do this. Is that right? Did I see correctly? Mercy is humble and doesn't presume to know what we don't know. When we confront a, sin, a sister or a brother in sin, we remember Jesus' command to take the log out of our own eye before we work on the speck in their eye. So we confront sin in others as those who understand ourselves to have needed and still need God's mercy. So before you confront sin in anyone, confess your own sin to the Lord. We don't ever confront a brother or sister thinking that we are better than them. But we convert, confront them with the conviction that we deserve the same justice and we rely on the same mercy and grace of God. And we understand that when we confront someone in sin, we do so for the purpose of restoring them. That's what Paul commands in Galatians 6, verse 1. When a brother is in sin, you, you who are spiritual, restore them in a spirit of gentleness. And he says that as we do that, we should be watchful, lest we also fall into temptation. Restoration requires that our own sin be dealt with, and it calls that sinning brother or sister to apply the gospel to their own sin. So what we do when we approach someone like that is we, we're hoping that they come to see the seriousness of their sin and to rejoice in the joy of forgiveness that Christ provides. That's the aim of confrontation. is that that brother or sister should repent of what they've done and come to see how Christ has provided exactly what their sin needs in forgiving them. And so the words we speak in confrontation should be gospel words. Words that lead them to look to Christ and his righteousness. Words that lead them to receive Christ's forgiveness. Now that's a lot of things that are hard to do, right? And it's inevitable that we're going to fail as we try to do those things. But by God's grace, that's what a, spirit, a, a, a community marked by God's spirit should be like. So just as Israel was supposed to be marked by God's mercy and justice with these cities of refuge... We want our character as a church to be marked by these same things. Even as we've related to you in the email this week, how we've tried to deal with Robbie, we, we hope and pray that, that we've been marked by that and we're continuing to try to be marked by mercy and justice as we confront sin and urge him to repentance. Pray for us as a church that this spirit will mark us. Because as we reflect God's justice and mercy in dealing with sin, we display the glory and goodness of the gospel. That God is just and sin is evil, but that God has made a way for sin to be paid for. So we want the goodness of God to shine brightly through our church. We want ourselves to reflect the goodness of God in his justice and mercy. In a similar way, we see the people of Israel here reflecting God's character as they provide for the priests. And that's what Joshua chapter 21 is all about. We're just briefly going to touch on what's happening here with the priests. Let me read verses 1 through 3 to get a flavor. Then the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites came to Eleazar the priest, and to Joshua the son of Nun, and to the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the people of Israel. And they, speaking of the priests or the Levites, said to them at Shiloh in the land of Canaan, The Lord commanded through Moses that we be given cities to dwell in, along with their pasture lands for our livestock. 
So by command of the Lord, the people of Israel gave to the Levites the following cities and pasture lands out of their inheritance. So the rest of 21 is, 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 the, is the tribes of Israel giving over these cities to the Levites. There's lots of background here. One of the reasons the Levites didn't get a portion in the land to begin with is because of their sin way back in Genesis with Dinah. And the Levites and Simeon were, were the two brothers who reacted in anger against the people of Shechem. And so in chapter 49 of Genesis, Joseph, I mean, uh, Jacob, as he's dying, he curses Levi and Simeon and says they're going to be scattered throughout the land. And so we see in this passage that's fulfilled. They're scattered, but they also receive amazingly a gracious inheritance as well in these cities that they're given. Scholars think that their, their Levi is particularly redeemed by the way they helped Moses in Exodus chapter 32 after the incident in the golden calf. But the main factor we need to notice here is that the Levites have this status of being the priestly tribe. They had this special role to play in serving God. And so in chapter 18, verse 7, the Lord says that the priesthood of the Lord is their heritage. Their special inheritance was God himself. This is the third time in these chapters that we see something like this that the priesthood of the, Levite, of the Lord is their heritage. And what we see here is that the Levites are sort of, uh, have the special role of picturing God's blessing with his people, God's presence with his people. More than any other tribe, that's what they represented, that God meets with his people. The Levites mediate God's presence to Israel. And so, to the extent that Israel prizes the blessing of God's presence... At the tabernacle, they would support and encourage the work of the Levites. So by giving these cities, they're saying, we value you, Levites. And this is not like a Hallmark card, we value you. But like, you are essential to us being who we are. Right? Remember what we said about, about Israel. They're only special because God is with them. And it's through the Levites that this presence of God is manifested as the Levites minister to the people and they minister to God on behalf of the people. So Israel is kind of demonstrating here in chapter 21 an ancient Israelite version of Jesus' words. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. They are giving their, their cities, their possessions to these, to these Levites because they prize God meeting with Israel and the Levites' ministry there. So these chapters here don't really don't simply record what was distributed. They show how the Lord established Israel for success in the land. They were a people created by God's goodness, and they were a people meant to reflect God's goodness, as they did justice and loved mercy, and as they worshipped their God. They were a people created for worship. God's goodness creates his people. And God's goodness calls forth their worship. That should lead us to ask, what makes us distinct as a people? Are we known for our worship? Now, in our day and age, we have to make clear, by worship, we're not just talking about the singing part of a church service. That's not what we're known for, I don't think. Although we have great singing. To speak of worship is to speak of how we honor Christ, of how we ascribe worth to his name. So we honor Christ by confessing our sin and believing in his work for us. We honor Christ by listening to his word, which means listening to his word means that we obey him and we trust his promises. We honor Christ by praising God for who he is and thanking him for what he's done. Like Israel, we even set aside the first fruits of our possessions to honor God and support the work of the ministry, to enable worship. Now, this all happens in a special way as we're gathered here. We're honoring Christ in these ways together. We hope all these elements are, are at play here as we worship God. This gathering is a, a service of our worship to God. And so we pray that it's honoring. We pray that we accurately reflect the goodness and grace of God in what we do here together. And this worship that we offer here is meant to radiate out through our lives every day. So every day, how do we honor Christ? By repenting of our sins and believing the gospel. 
Every day we honor Christ by listening to him, by trusting in his promises and obeying him. Every day we want to live lives that honor him. So we pray, hallowed be your name. God, may your name be rightly esteemed by the way I live. Every day we thank him for the good gifts he's given us. We use all that we have throughout our week, knowing that we are simply stewards of good gifts God's given us, seeking to be faithful and use them for God's glory. And throughout our week, we encourage each other to worship him. So with all that in mind, we ask again, are we distinguished by our worship? This isn't like a church pride thing. We're not saying, are we better worshipers than church XYZ on the street? That's not at all what we're saying. What I mean is, do we stand out from the world? The way Israel was meant to stand out from their Canaanite neighbors. Do we stand out as a bright light in a dark world, reflecting the unchanging goodness of God? Is your life marked by that kind of worship of God? And are you seeking to live your life among your brothers and sisters here in this church so that our church is distinguished as a worshiping people? Joshua 18 through 21 shows us the unchanging, gracious, righteous, merciful goodness of God. Are we reflecting that goodness? Let's pray. Father, we pray for eyes to see and ears to hear about your goodness. If we have grown weary and are overcome with the cares of the world, all we can see are our, our own problems or even our own sins. We pray this morning for eyes to see your goodness, that we would taste and see that you are good. And we pray for self-understanding. Help us to answer this final question. Are we reflecting your goodness? Are there any ways in which we're putting off trusting you? Are there any ways we're, we're sheltering or indulging our sin? We pray you'd bring those things to light even now as we come to this table and grant us repentance and faith in Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.